0: Well good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Mark 11? It's page 847 on a blue pew Bible. If you want to follow along there... um this is a week we get to kind of stand at the crossroads of our seasons of compassion, as Megan outlined. Uh, boxes of Love come in. That's kind of a local outreach. And then uh, Operation Christmas Child kicks off. That's a global outreach to show how even a church, little church in Ridgewood, New Jersey, can have impacts that uh, go to the ends of the earth and that we get the opportunity to play a part in that. And just kind of recognizing as a church that we um, are in the world at a certain time and we're, we're proclaiming the gospel and the good news to a certain context and, uh, you know, I just appreciate Megan's prayer just for our country, and just that served me well, sitting there. I mean, just a heavy heart, as I'm sure many of you have as well. Um, we were at a wedding all day yesterday, last night, so it just, you know, caught a little bit of wind of what happened in Pittsburgh yesterday. But uh, this morning, you know, just kind of reading more about it, seeing more about it, and it just uh, puts a weight on your soul. Um, and we um, should know as Christians more than anybody to mourn with those who mourn. And to know what uh, lament is, and lament over evil, and uh, I mean, just following that brutal attack, we we should also, as Christians, be the first ones to uh, firmly denounce any kind of anti-Semitic action. Because what do we do here, week after week? We we gather and we worship a man named Jesus, who was born into a Jewish family. And we spoke about it last week. He came from the line of David, from the tribe of Judah. And so, uh, very much just echo uh, Megan's words there in that prayer, and and knowing that we are in anxious times right now, and it's an age of anxiety, it's an age of outrage, um, and, you know, that churches and places of worship all of a sudden have to start thinking about things that they never had to think about before. And I imagine... Some, even this morning, waking up, going to church, maybe felt a little bit different than another Sunday. Uh, Maybe, unfortunately, there's people that are not here that would have been here if it weren't for yesterday. And uh, just thinking about our church, and over the last year, for the first time ever in 71 years of Grace Church, we we formed a security team, because we need one. And we have a procedure of locking down our building right when the service starts, especially down in the kids' wings. In areas, And it's not things you think you're going to talk about in staff meetings and, and think about with your elders and your staff about what we need to do to protect ourselves and be mindful of that. But that is the day that we are in, that we need to be smart and wise and at the same time just go deeper into... The gospel that we believe and proclaim that we have full assurance in, um, and that we can do both. Um, But what was formerly unheard of in churches is all of a sudden not as unheard of. And even if it's just in small measure, uh, we are able to um, empathize with brothers and sisters across the world who are gathering every single week out of fear and what that must feel like, what weight that must be on their shoulders, and yet they're gathering because they need to gather, they need to worship, they need to proclaim, and so we will never be afraid of gathering, but we also need to be wise, and it's just a complex world. I mean, for, for every attack against a religious system out of hatred, there's also uh, men and women who carry out attacks in the name of religion, and it's just a really complex world that we want to, um, as again Megan prayed, just be people of peace. The Prince of Peace is the man that we worship and we're going to proclaim. And so my prayer for all of you that even as we go through our sermon this morning, uh, that we're able to fully focus and dial in and our hearts stirred for a truth that is unshakable in a world that is very shakable. So as we start, we're going to talk a little bit this morning about false appearances I think it's safe to say there's nothing more frustrating in life than, than a false appearance. Something appears one way at first from a distance, but then as you get closer, it proves to not be what it promised. It's all show, no substance. It's frustrating. And depending on what you're talking about, there are varying levels of frustration. So um, I think about in our kind of tech age, uh, from time to time, it doesn't happen as much anymore because we've become more tech savvy in our day, but we will get emails or notifications that we have a word for. It. It's called spam. It's not just a nasty food anymore. It's these kind of weird emails that we get. And, and, and you, you get this pop-up that says, you, you've won a cruise vacation. Just click this link to claim your prize. And if you think back to like the early internet days or when it really started coming to rise, like late 90s, early 2000s, um, we, we got duped by those so easily. You couldn't control the pop-ups and you would, you would see it. And in the back of your mind, you'd be like, this can't really be true. But be honest, more than once we've all clicked it. Because what if this is a free cruise they're trying to give me just for being on my computer? Like maybe this is what computers are awesome and we just need to do this more often. And so what happens is we didn't realize back then that these pop-up ads get paid per click. You know what that means? Like they, 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 they generate revenue by the amount of people that see their page or click their links. And so uh, we, you click for that free cruise and it sends you on just this loop and maze of more pages and more clicks. And again, like we were so gullible in like 15 years ago and maybe even sometimes now. But what happened is that you'd get through it. You'd go 15 minutes of links and pages and questions until eventually you realize you've been duped and this is stupid and computers are the worst thing in the world. And you're frustrated. Why are you frustrated? Because it was a false appearance. It promised to be one thing. And then you went deeper, took a closer look, and nothing. No substance, no, substance, no cruise. And false appearances become even more frustrating and and really more hurtful when you start talking about people, when you start talking about relationships. Think about if you start a dating relationship or when you did and were dating and you would meet a guy or girl at first, and at first they appeared really, really great. Like they are checking all the boxes that you were looking for, that first coffee date or that first night out. But as time goes on and you get drawn in and you take a deeper look, You begin to see them more, and you find out that was a false front. That first night, it's not really who they are. They are not who you thought they were. they, They appeared to be really awesome, and now you're frustrated. And it's been weeks, months, maybe even years. It was all show, but no substance. We could go on and on with examples, but hopefully at this point, we understand from experience that false appearances can be infuriating. But of any example we could give, there's nothing more dangerous, hear me, nothing more frustrating to God than the false appearance of faith. A false appearance of faith and devotion to him is frustrating to our God. And In our passage this morning, we're going to see why. Why is that so frustrating? We're going to see what happens when faith in people is all show but no substance. And this morning, we're going to see a side of Jesus we just haven't really seen much before. We're going to see a side of him that we definitely really not seen this point in the Gospel of Mark. It's a sign of frustration, but honestly, more than that, it's a side of anger. Like, like we should always be careful when we use the word hate, right? Your parents tell kids, like, don't use that word. It's a very strong word, and it is. It's a very strong word. It's a very strong word in our Bible. But in our passage this morning, it fits. Jesus hates False appearances. And so our text today is a little bit heavy. It's going to apply some pressure on us. It's going to apply some pressure in our minds and our hearts as we apply it. And prayerfully, my prayer all week, it's a good kind of heaviness. It's a good kind of pressure that will be good for us in the end. So let's go. Let's start by reading Mark 11. We're going to pick it up in verse 12. Take it through verse 25 this morning but we'll start just verses 12 through 14. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he, he was Jesus, was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one eat, ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. We're going to see this morning two things Jesus hates, and then one thing He wants. First thing Jesus hates: appearance without substance. Appearance without substance. So, as a reminder for those who maybe missed last week, Mark 11 begins what we know as Holy Week. Chapters 11 through 16 cover the span of just seven days. And last week, what we saw, what happened on that first Sunday, Palm Sunday. Jesus entered into the city. The Messiah has arrived. The king has arrived. It was this masterful picture of power, but in meekness, because he came on a donkey. And when he got into Jerusalem, he roamed around the temple, taking it all in with his disciples. And then after a while, he just goes to the men with him and says, all right, let's go home. Sunday's in the books. And now, beginning in verse 12, we just read, now it's Monday, Monday morning. And with a different day, Jesus' approach to the temple is going to be as far removed from the day before as it could get. He he sets out again from Bethany towards Jerusalem, um, where they were staying, presumably with his friends, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. And Mark tells us he was hungry. It's this kind of small detail that reminds us of Jesus' humanity. He was fully man. Jesus got hungry. His stomach growled. When he was tired, he yawned. Jesus needed sleep and he needed drink and he needed water as daily sustenance because he was fully man and now lo and behold in his hunger on his walk he sees a fig tree in the distance and knowing what he's about to do in Jerusalem once they get there he realizes thou this is this is an opportunity to teach his disciples a lesson And so he acts out kind of this mini parable before them. A a parable, we've seen them before in Mark, we're going to see them again uh, down the road, is a, a deceptively simple story that illustrates a truth about the kingdom of God. That's what a parable is. A deceptively simple story that illustrates a truth about the kingdom of God. And he sees a tree in the distance that Mark says is in full leaf. Meaning, it was giving off the appearance of life. It was beautiful. It was green. It was a leafy fig tree. And a leaf, a true healthy fig tree, would be full of figs. So Jesus is hungry. This is what he's going after, bringing his disciples with him. It has the appearance of life and fruit from a distance. And then they get to the tree, and what happens? There's no figs, there's no fruit. It promised one thing from a distance. It promised one thing at first, but it did not deliver on that promise upon closer examination. It was nothing but leaves. So Jesus curses the tree. May no one eat of you and your fruit ever again. He casts judgment upon a fig tree. One thing that's interesting to note, this is the final miracle in the Gospel of Mark. We got a lot of text left, but this is the last time there's a miracle and it's the only time where the miracle is a curse. Every other time Mark did, uh, Jesus did a miracle in the Gospel of Mark, it brought healing, it restored somebody from evil. Every other miracle was a reason to praise. Things got better. But this one, and notably, the last one, it's a curse. And upon first glance, it seems almost unbecoming of Jesus to do this. Kind of pointless to do this. Jesus, you're, you're cursing a, a tree. It seems like this burst of anger. Like, you all right, Jesus? Did you not sleep well last night? Like, case of the Mondays? Like, chill out, man. It's like, that's a tree. But we know that the meaning goes far beyond leaves and figs because this whole scene is a lesson for his disciples. And we're going to be told later on what that lesson is. But he says this curse loud enough for people to hear This was not under his breath, out of frustration. He says it loud enough knowing his disciples are hearing it, finding it a little bit strange. But the fig tree is a symbol. It's a symbol for the temple that they're heading towards, for the nation of Israel. In order to get across this simple point, Jesus hates false appearances. It's not the first time in Scripture that fig trees are used in this way. The the Old Testament often deployed the same illustration, which is why I think Jesus went ahead and used it himself. There was a man named Jeremiah. He was a prophet, and he wrote a book of prophecy to warn Judah, which was the southern tribes of the nation of Israel. It's where the capital of Jerusalem was, to warn them about judgment that was coming 600 years before Jesus was born. So the nation of Babylon's going to come in and take you into exile. And Jeremiah is the one who's warning them about this. And the warning then, just as it is right now in Jesus' day, is against false appearances. We're going to have some of the Jeremiah passage up on the screen. Jeremiah 8, 8 and 9. How can you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom is in them? And then going down to verse 13, watch this. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. There's another passage in Micah 7, says very much the same thing of warning, and this fruitlessness is always associated with hypocrisy, this wickedness of hypocrisy. God in the Old Testament, and then Jesus being God in the New Testament, they hate false appearances, the kinds that, make, uh, that have all the makings of a good, healthy nation from a distance, the appearance of devotion to God the lip service that says the right things but upon closer examination all show no substance. Just empty. Hypocritical. This was the state of the temple and the nation of Israel in Jesus' day and it was Israel's recurring problem throughout the problem. False appearances. And so Jesus uses this little fig tree to be a foreshadow to the judgment that is coming. So let's see what happens from there. Mark 11. We'll now read verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written? My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it into a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Second thing Jesus hates. Strong word, fitting word. Jesus hates activity without reverence. Jesus hates activity without reverence. So this trip to the temple for Jesus and his disciples, again, is a little bit different than the one the day before because this time he's not taking it all in. This time he's driving it all out. He's knocking over tables and chairs. He's chasing people out. He's not even allowing anyone to carry goods through the temple courts. And he just shuts it down momentarily. He's angry. He's frustrated. He just can't handle it anymore. And like, Jesus, what happened from yesterday to today? What is so different? Is this fake anger? Is this just fake to put on a show for himself? Is it just to get a point across? I don't think so. I think Jesus was really fuming, unbelievably frustrated, and not in like the immature way we often are. Like, Christians can often be like, I have righteous anger. It's like, no, you don't. That's just immature anger. <laughs> so this is not an immature show Jesus is putting on like he's like a little kid. It's a righteous anger towards injustice. So let me share a little bit about what's, what was happening in the temple that really uh, can help shed light on this anger. Um, so the temple in Jerusalem, it's almost, there's like no modern day equivalent to how important that building was. How it was just where everything happened. Like, so, I mean, just for us, we live right outside New York City. Imagine in one building you had the Empire State Building, the World Trade Center, MSG, Radio City, all in Central Park. Like, that building would almost get to what, how significant the temple was in Jerusalem. It was the center of the city in every single way. And this temple had an outer court called the Court of the Gentiles. It was a section of the temple where non-Jews and Jews alike had access to it. It was a vast open area within the walls of the temple. It was about 35 acres. If you don't know acres, it was about 25 football fields, all right? So you should know that. It was that, that that's the land. You can kind of picture that in your mind how big this is. But remember, there are at this point at least hundreds of thousands of people in Jerusalem and maybe as many as a million people during the Passover, And as part of their um, tradition, Jews had to bring a suitable animal for sacrifice for Passover. But what happened was that the temple officials, or the people living in Jerusalem, saw an opportunity here to make some money off of this, because everyone has to bring an animal. So what happened was that this animal had to pass inspection in order to get approved to get sacrificed which means the majority of the people in the capital have done this pilgrimage from the outside. They would not pass with the animal that they brought because it would no longer be clean by the time they got to Jerusalem. So they had the option, but really they were forced to buy a pre-approved, pre-certified animal like it was a used car. They had to buy it in order to sacrifice it in the temple, but now they're pretty much forced to buy it also from the temple. And to give you some perspective on scale, like is this a few lambs and doves or what, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us that in each Passover, over a quarter million lambs were sold. And that's just one of the animals for sacrifice. Mark specifically mentions selling pigeons in verse 15, and the reason was because the type of animal you had to sacrifice was kind of a tiered system based upon how wealthy you were. And the ones who sold the pigeons where the um, poorest of the poor could sacrifice a pigeon. It depended on wealth status. And so to exploit this system, merchants in the temple would mark up the prices 20 times the normal amount. And not only that, but if pilgrims were coming with a foreign currency, first they had to exchange it for temple currency, of course, which came with a fee. So let me, again, just give you, let's say you show up to the temple with $100. First, you have to exchange that for temple dollars. So let's say there's a $10 fee. So now you have $90. And then you had to sacrifice a lamb, normal value, let's say three bucks. Now you're paying $60 for your lamb. And you are getting totally ripped off because that is the only animal they will accept you for your sacrifice, which is a big deal for you because it's Passover. And you need an animal to sacrifice as the Bible prescribes. So it was a total ripoff, it was a sham of an industry. And the reason why Mark mentions pigeons is, again, because that was for the poorest of the poor. So it's not that they were taking money from the rich. They were not taking it from the top percent. They were ripping off the poorest people in the land to make some money. Systematic injustice. That's what it looks like. Systems that work against the poorest people in the land. It's not just a first century problem still pervasive systems that work against whole groups of people. And while dishonest gain from buying and selling, I think was very much a part of the reason why Jesus was angry, I don't think that's even the whole story. Because I think even if they were doing all above board pricing, even if this was all legit pricing where they were, they were exchanging and buying and selling at prices that they should have been selling at, I still think Jesus would have become angry, that he not would not have just been fine with it because this holy temple has now just turned into a marketplace within the walls, completely stripping it of its intended significance. It became a marketplace bustling with activity, listen to me, in the name of the Lord, but without any reverence for the Lord. Jesus hates activity without reverence, even religious activity. I think this is the real reason for his anger, because of what he said in verse 17. He said, the Scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Where is he quoting from there? He's quoting from Isaiah chapter 56. Let me read those verses he's quoting directly from. Isaiah 56, 6 and 7. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called the house of prayer for all peoples. For all peoples. Peoples, all nations. The temple in Jerusalem was intended to be a place where God met with people, where sacrifices were made, and where people from all nations, not just Israel, could come interact and encounter the Lord. It goes back to Genesis 12, and when God first blessed Abraham, he said, I'm going to make a mighty nation out of you to bless all the families and nations of the earth. That was their purpose but now they've become so insular. They're not an attractive place where people came and saw something different to encounter God. It was not a spiritual center point. It was not a place of spiritual power. It was not a place that reflected God's glory. It was all show, no substance. It was a fig tree that was nothing but leaves. And upon closer examination, all it is is a, dishonest marketplace, lots of activity in the name of the Lord, lots of busyness, thinking they're doing good things but no reverence stripped of its intended meaning and replaced by dishonest gain and greed and so Jesus hates activity without reverence and he's cleaning house two things Jesus hates, strong so what does he want in its place, what's the point here What's he getting across to his disciples? Let's go. Finish the passage. Mark 11, 20 through 25. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you've cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. What's he want? What does Jesus want? Not really the response maybe we were expecting. You can sum it up like this. Jesus wants faith with fruit. Jesus wants faith with fruit. So if you're, again, tracking Holy Week progression, verse 20, where we just read, now brings us to Tuesday morning. And there they are, just like the morning before, walking from Bethany to Jerusalem, and they see this tree again, and Peter, in a stunned way, says, Look, Jesus, the tree you cursed. It's actually dead. It's withered. Like by now, if anyone should not be shocked by the power of Jesus, it's Peter. But Peter, nonetheless, mind is blown. He can't believe that when Jesus cursed it, it actually died. It has been exposed. Its appearance now reflects its reality. And so you expect Jesus to start railing against the temple here, right? Railing against Jerusalem, railing against um, all the wickedness and hypocrisy of the Pharisees, but he doesn't. He, He doesn't talk about the past. He actually doesn't even mention Israel or the temple when he teaches them their lesson. The whole cursing of the fig tree was to teach his disciples a lesson for the future. Because Jesus knows what's coming this week. Nothing is going to change the mind of the Pharisees or the chief priests. We read that in verse 18. All it did was embolden them. It actually just made them angrier at Jesus. It just convinced them more. This guy's got to go fast. The crowds, are starting to like him again. I don't like this. We've got to get rid of him. They were dead set on destroying Jesus. There would be no nationwide revival happening. But Jesus can, and Jesus does, use this scene to shape and follow his, and shape and teach his disciples, the very ones whom he has been equipping for three years, the very ones who he will soon commission to go and make disciples of all nations after his death and resurrection. And as we said and saw last week, in a few days it will be clear that Jesus is the true and greater temple. Through his sacrifice and shedding of his own blood, men and women of all nations will now be reconciled to the Father. He will accomplish what the temple was no longer accomplishing. And the physical temple will no longer be needed because its impact and purpose will now exist in the living Christ. Not only that, but Paul, about 20 years down the road, will be writing letters to churches, and he will tell the churches continually that you, the church are the body of Christ, meaning you are part of this temple. Jesus is the head. You are the body. The church is a type of temple. Whereas God's glory used to be contained within a sacred space, now it's within a sacred people in the church. Christ is the head. Church is the body. And it's in that context which now we understand what Jesus is saying to his disciples. It says, you guys the men and women who are going to be spreading this and setting the foundation of the church, you shall not be a false appearance. You should not be all show and no substance. You should be known by your fruit. And he gives us some examples of what kind of fruit this might look like, like prayer, like forgiving others, like showing mercy. You notice that list? Those are all things that should have been happening in the temple and they weren't. Those are the things that should have been evident in the people of God wherever they are, praying desperately out to the Lord, forgiving others horizontally in relationships within the people of God, showing mercy to the least of these. The very things that were not happening in the temple needs to happen in the church or else you are all show and no substance. And so how can we do that? What's the way we can actually bear real real fruit? Jesus gave it to us in four simple words in verse 22. Have faith in God. I love the simplicity and the power in that statement. Hear me. Here's the main point of this whole sermon. Have faith in God more than you have faith in the appearance of being godly. You hear me? Have faith in God more than you have faith in the appearance of being godly. The only faith that saves is faith in God who sent His Son to die on the cross for your sins, who through Him grants forgiveness for your sin, gives righteousness in its place, the great exchange your sin paid for, His righteousness now on you. This is why we have faith in God. And I tell people as often as I can, everybody in this room has faith. Everybody in this world has faith. The question is not if you have it, but what are you putting it in? It takes faith, I think, in many ways, more faith to be an atheist, just like it takes faith to be a Christian. It takes faith to believe in nothing. Just like it takes faith to believe in Jesus Christ. So... so, so. Jesus is not saying just have faith. He's saying have faith in God. So here's how we can apply this to close out our morning. Here's where we put some pressure on ourselves and allow the weight of this text to sit on us, hopefully for our good. And the question is simple, where is your faith? Especially for people within the church. Is your faith in God Or is your faith in the appearance of looking and being godly? One of the biggest tricks the devil can fool us with is giving us false assurance that if we just fill our lives with enough religious activity, if we appear to be a good Christian from the outside, if we do things that are really filling our schedule in the name of the Lord, then we actually are in the Lord. The kind of faith that works from the outside in We convince ourselves that we're pretty good people. We we do good things. We're not as bad as that guy. We're not as bad as her. And as a result, one day, God's going to give us the the reward of heaven someday because we're pretty good people at our core. That is the biggest con job Satan has in America today. And it's horrifyingly popular inside the church, not just outside. And I know it because I was duped by it for years. I was clicking on the link going on a free vacation thinking I was good and I was good and I'm gonna get there. I thought I mastered the game and I grew up in this church and I heard the gospel preached and I had good teachers and disciples and yet I was still falling asleep at night, assured because if, other, if you asked other people about me, I was pretty good. Go ask my dad, I'm a good Christian kid. Go ask them over there. They've seen me in this situation. I'm always active. I'm present. I was sitting in that row all the time. And my assurance was wrapped up in the appearance of being godly. And I did not have reverence for the Lord. I had faith in the fact that other people would say I was good, and I was checking the boxes, and I was active as a Christian in Christian-type things. And it is haunting to look back and see how rest assured I was in that. I had no trouble falling asleep at night. I was a false appearance. And if it wasn't for God's grace to expose that in my life, expose me to how ugly the sin of hypocrisy was, I would still be there. Charles Spurgeon sums it up like this. Religious people often have nothing but leaves. Referencing this passage. There's a tree, and in the distance it looks great, full of leaf. But as you get closer and you take a look, there's no fruit there. And so I want to be very careful in just how I, and give some nuance of what I'm saying and what I'm not saying. It is good thing to be godly outwardly. It is a good thing to be devoted in religious activity, church attendance, consistent in Bible studies, serving on teams. Religious activity is not bad. It is good. In some ways, it's required to expose real faith, but the mere appearance of it does not guarantee anything, and certainly not salvation. You know what does guarantee salvation? True faith in God. Faith in Jesus Christ, real faith that goes from the inside out, a faith and affection for the Lord who paid for my sin, who I want to surrender it all to, and that inside transformation will lead to devotion. It will lead to activity, and it will bear fruit. And so my push on you, my plea before you, is to do some healthy self-examination here. If you proclaim to be a Christian, are you the sort of person that gets better as people get closer? Does your faith and the fruit in your life, your affection for Jesus, does that become more evident as people get to know you more? When they start seeing you in difficult circumstances, when they start seeing you around your family, in the workplace, how you act on social media, as they get to know you more, does it start to look better? Are people more affirmed and encouraged by your faith in God the more they get to know you? Or does it tend to go the other way? Where as they get closer, it's all leaves but no fruit. People are impressed at the beginning, but then they're left searching for figs when they get up next to you. And again, we have to be very careful here, very nuanced here. It should go without saying, if you've heard me preach, that this does not mean perfection. Perfection fruitfulness does not mean perfection. It does not mean you don't struggle. It does not mean we don't have moments of sin often, but it means that we don't use that truth to justify false appearances. So here's something that we hear often. Um, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It's all Jesus, not me. And that actually gets used as a justification to just to keep on sinning. Like it's not me, it's him. And so now this all of a sudden, this kind of weird twisted game we have in our own hearts and our own minds, that I can just keep doing this because again, it's not me, it's him. And Paul strongly rebukes that. By no means should that be our mentality that because we do struggle with sin and there's the presence of it, that we can just keep walking in it without any feeling of fear or harm. It's a dangerous game. And in our small groups this week, we're going to discuss more. How can we know if that's us? What does that examination look like? So go to small group this week. Is your faith in God, or is your faith in the appearance of being godly? The answer to that question can quite literally be the difference between heaven and hell. And then lastly, we can apply the same question to us as a church. Corporate application. Does our appearance of godliness and fruit as a church become substantiated when people give a closer look? So we, we, we've been talking about this often. I, I've said it a lot. What we, we've been hearing in the last year, a year and a half, about Grace Church—people from within Grace encouraging me, people outside of Grace telling me, like, "Hey, sounds like things are going really great over there." I'm hearing a lot of good things coming from Grace Church. I'm encouraged by a lot of things that I'm hearing and I'm seeing. And listen, it feels good to hear that. But is our joy rooted in the appearance of things going well? In the appearance of godliness and growth? Or is our joy as a church rooted in the faithfulness of God himself? Whatever that means for us. Whether that's a pathway of growth or whether that's a pathway of suffering and defeat. Listen to the words to Jesus to a church in a city called Sardis, recorded in Revelation chapter 3, thinking about the fig tree. Jesus says this to a church, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Think about those verses in light of a fig tree. You have the reputation. You have the appearance of life. That looks good from a distance, but Jesus knows there's no fruit. And we're gullible people, man. We talked about that at the beginning. We can fool other people. We can fool ourselves, but Jesus will not be fooled, and he will expose what is true every time. And the temple in Mark 11 was all activity in the name of the Lord without any reverence for the Lord. So let us not be blind to the temptation that still exists for churches today. I often tell the staff to pray for me that I would love the gospel more than I love preaching the gospel. You hear me? I want to love this gospel more than I love preaching this gospel. Because if that gets flipped, we're all in trouble. And so something we need to keep an eye on. As a people see our church from afar and they see the appearance of health and growth and godliness, yes and amen to that, but are they more encouraged or less encouraged the closer they get? Do we have room for all people to come in and encounter the living God as the temple was meant to be in Jerusalem? Or have we crowded it out and been an obstacle for people to do that as the temple turned out to be in Jerusalem? Boil it down to this. Grace Church, are there figs on the vine? Or are we nothing but leaves? I believe our faith and joy is rooted in the gospel, but we need to fight the good fight of faith to stay that way and lean on God's grace because he be the only one who will carry us home faithful. So this passage, it's heavy, and it's meant to be heavy, and it's a warning, and it's a promise. It's a warning that in due time, Jesus will expose all false appearances and he will destroy them. And then it's a promise that those who accept him as our Lord and Savior, those who put our faith in him, we will never be cursed and we will never wither in him. And let those of us who have ears to hear this morning hear the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word even in mornings that it could be tough to hear. And so, Lord, I pray that it is a healthy examination that we might have on ourselves as individuals and as a church. But I pray, Lord, that even in that, that we would not stare at ourselves. Allow us to keep from becoming too prideful or too discouraged and let the remedy be the same. Fix our eyes in Christ alone. Put our eyes on you. Let our assurance flow from our faith in you, not in ourselves, Lord. Let that lead to outward godliness that flows from the inside out, Lord. Father, be patient with us. Have mercy on us. And let it be for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.